right. Well, good morning, guys. How are y'all doing this morning? Good. Good. Fun. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, it's good to be back and good to, to be back on our podcast. We've had, uh, I think, one postponement. It might have been two postponements that we had. And I know uh, through the month of December, we have uh we we sort of took some time off there but we're we're trying to get back on a a regular schedule here so it's good to see you all and good to to come back to this this morning uh not so good to speak on the topic that we have to speak on today which is a, a recurring battle that we fight in our lives which is um the battle of of, of sin in the Christian's life but uh but it is a reality and, and it is a a battle so uh, I'm looking forward to um, to to talking to you guys about this this morning. You know, as I was thinking about this yesterday afternoon, I was just uh, re-looking over the reading and and trying to 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 wrap my mind around it again because it's been a few weeks since I actually read the chapters. Uh, I was just reminded about Martin Luther's, you know, that famous statement he made. Uh, I, I think it's Samuel Eustace at peccator and, and i i, I, I yeah. can't speak latin so yeah. I, I don't know if i'm yeah. pronouncing it right but anyway he was saying simultaneously just and sinner sometimes it's simultaneously yeah. saint sinner he says and uh and and he used that phrase to basically communicate the uh the theological understanding of the christian is both at the same time justified and righteous and at the same time a sinner and uh and and we have to hold those two together i mean we're justified before god because our sins are pardoned, because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Yet, in our ongoing day-to-day life as a uh, as a pilgrim, you know, in this world, we still have this huge struggle with sin that is discouraging, and and, and sadly, it, it leads to devastating consequences uh, in in the life. So, you know, as we were thinking of, uh, about these things that we're going to talk about today, and as I was looking at it, which Marvin, I mean, this really goes to what you're going to talk about at the very end is uh, how, how does a Christian who's justified in Christ deal with uh, the continuing presence uh, of sin? And I know that that's just been a question in, in my life that I, I've had to hold to. And uh, usually the two things that, that I've tried to do, which really years I guess it was years ago. I mean, right when we started in Ephesians, it really jumped out at me that one of the best ways you fight against sin is you remember who you are in Christ. I mean, Paul's writing in Ephesians 1, all these wonderful truths about how we've been redeemed, how we've been adopted, how we've been forgiven, we've been given all these spiritual blessings. Uh, what else? Oh, he says we ha- we've obtained an inheritance. And I mean, just tremendous descriptions of what we have in Christ by the grace of God. And and basically, he's saying, you know, your relationship to sin has been utterly changed, and how you respond to sin needs to arise out of how you understand who you are in Christ. And so that was something that was very uh, helpful to me. Of course, I think as, as us being reformed, we've always held to one of the great ways we battle against sin is is the means of grace. Just knowing that uh, that we need to be part of a, a church that is faithful to the gospel, that faithfully proclaims the gospel through all aspects of our worship, whether it's the preaching, the praying, the singing, even the fellowship. As we talk to one another, we encourage each other with the word. And uh, But I tell you, here being in, in Ephesians chapter 6, another thing that I've sort of just tried to, to add to that that I've seen is even though, yeah, we understand who we are in Christ and we have the means of grace, but 
putting on that armor of God. And, and for me in my life, this has just been so helpful to me to come into this, this uh, last part of Ephesians that it, it really just says, I mean, we need that. We need that uh, belt of truth, that breastplate of righteousness, that mm-hmm. shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the, the sword of the spirit. And, and it truly is a battle. And that battle imagery Paul uses there is absolutely appropriate. We, we have to do battle against these things that would cause us to, to fall away from God. And it's a constant fight. And, and I know I read years ago, uh, and I forget what Puritan it was, or I think it was more than one who always said that once you come to know Christ in this world, that begins the long war, and you will fight that war until the very day the Lord brings you home. And for me, that just uh, that just made a ripple in my brain, a ripple in my heart. That like, yes, it, it truly is. So, but praise be to God because He gives us all we need to fight this. So even as we talk about this this morning, this awful thing about sin, and um, we're going to talk about these three aspects of, of actual sins, uh, how how sins rise up. It's almost like a uh, 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 the, the thing I got, I think I messed it up in my sermon where I was talking about the nature of a dog and a cat, but, uh, but even here you think about actual sins, original sins, you know, the nature of, uh, of our fallen selves are sinners. And so what do sinners do? They sin. And so, you know, we're going to talk about those actual sins that rise up from our nature. And then Will, you're going to lead us in talking about the punishment of God, which, you know, Marvin in Sunday school, you, you sort of tease that out, uh, you know, what, what better guy to do that than, than a guy who knows law, you know, in this world and knows about uh, justice and knows about uh, consequences and, 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 you know, condemnation and rulings and things like that. And then Marvin, you know, at the end, uh, sort of what we're talking about, brother, help us to know as Christians, you know, how do we battle this sin? How do we fight against this sin? So brothers, I'm looking forward to this, even though this is a a topic I wish we didn't have to talk about. I wish it didn't affect our lives whatsoever, but the reality of it is that it does. So, so let's move into this. So Mike, do you want to lead us off? Mike, tell us about uh, these actual sin. Tell us about the things we actually do that arise up because of our sin nature, because of original sin. Oh, brothers, before Mike does that, I thought that was my assignment. <laughs> yeah, I thought mine was 25. Oh, is it? Okay. Oh, it <laughs> is, it is, Marvin. It, it, it is, Marvin. I'm so sorry, man. I, I should look at my list. No, I was, uh, yeah, instead of not seeing a face, y'all not going to see anything at all if, if that was not my, if that's not <laughs> no, my chapter. No, no I've, got, I've got it right here. Yeah, you are leading us off, man. So get right up in there. I apologize for that. Okay. And I well, am tw- I am chapter 25, right? Yes, yeah. yes. And yeah. Will, yeah, Will, you're, Will yeah, your you're, spot has not changed. You're right there in the middle, brother. <laughs> right. right on. Yeah, right. And I want to give uh, both you guys as much time as I can. Uh, in 23, uh, boy, there's so much that I could bog us down for an hour, but I will try to fly mm-hmm. through this. I think there are some things that really do. I think there's some things that really do stick out in this. And I think that really help us to understand. But I like the the title of the chapter here, he, he says, actual sins, the diverse poisonous fruit of original sin. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very helpful, diverse particularly, because the chapter really deals with the, the, the many ways uh, uh, in which uh, sin affects our lives, and not only our lives, the lives of others as well, um, and and most of all our our relationship with God. Poisonous in the sense that I do like that word, and I think that that Beaky deals with that very well in the sense that a uh, poison, uh, when it enters, it uh, 
it does its damage by by attacking the, the entire system. And I think that's what he says about actual sins as well, is not only uh, do they take many different forms, uh, but that they actually circulate not only through our body, but the body of our family and the, even, he says, the body of our church in such a way uh, that they have devastating effects. Um, that being said, let me, again, as I said, try to uh, try to uh, uh, go through this as quickly as I can. Uh, he does make the point that when the Bible talks of sin, it, it both talks about uh, the root of it, which we've been giving a lot of attention to, and that is uh, basically the spiritual deadness uh, before we're converted, uh, or that old man, as Paul talks about in Romans 7, uh, which is constantly about the process of of, uh, of, bring, of bringing us uh, or uh, bringing us in disobedience. But he says there's actually that transition there where it's not just uh, sin in theory or sin in doctrine, but it's actually sin in deed as it works its way through the body. Uh, he talks about on uh, 436 the dimensions of actual sin. And, and I like that word dimensions because uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, what, uh, and particularly with his emphasis here that he attributes largely to Samuel Willard here, uh, in terms of the role of love in not only in in sin, uh, but also in, Van, as you were saying, in sanctification as well. Uh, the dimensions actually helps me because in Romans 8, as Paul says, and, and all, knowing all these things were more, more than conquerors to him who loved us, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, uh, from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, and so I like that height and depth, and that gets to the dimensions as well. He talks about sins of, uh, about against God and one's neighbor. Uh, and just to summarize this, rather than go through the entire thing, uh, he basically says that, yes, there is a proper way to talk about sins against God and sins against one's neighbor. Uh, but as we know, ultimately, there's an element there's an element in in both of those particularly in our sins against another uh because our sins against another are ultimately sins against god uh and i thought it, i thought it very helpful in the way he he drew the connection there because he says that they are that they are sins against love and i love i love what he says here and matter of fact he says on the first sentence of the full first full, full paragraph of 437 he says, sin then always involves a failure to love God. And, mm-hmm. and so whenever, uh, whenever he says then, uh, uh, we, we try to separate those uh, uh, sins against our neighbor or someone else against sin from God, he says ultimately, he says ultimately that is an artificial distinction. Um, and I, I also love what he, he, he uh, quotes Samuel Willard again in the, uh, uh, partial paragraph above there on 437 uh, he, when he says every sin against a human being is also a sin against God because God created man in his image. And then Willard explained God and our neighbor do not stand upon even ground so that these must, so that these must divide our love. And I think that's a very, very important point there. They do not stand on equal ground that we must divide our love evenly between them. He says rather 
God stands as the ultimate object and highest end and center of all our love. And man, his creatures, should receive our love as it passes on to God like a river that flows its shores but does not stop until it reaches the ocean. Mm. And, and if I if I stop right there, basically I've covered the chapter, really. Yeah. Because I, I think I think that does get to it in the sense that um that our love for God, basically, uh, in a right relationship with God, love for our neighbor actually stands in the stream of our of our love for God. Uh, so much so that if we don't love God or we're not sustaining that relationship, there is no way that in that stream then that we will love our neighbor. Uh, if we do not love God, then we have actually then placed our affection upon something else. And it's likely to be our neighbor. As a matter of fact, in almost every case, it's either our neighbor, his possessions. Look at the second table of the law. All of them deal to some degree on either with the person or with their possessions, uh, whether material or in terms of their marriage relationships, uh, all that. And so I think that's a very important point here that he gets at is that is that ultimately it's all it's all in our uh, the, the obligation is to love God and to it seems to me that the, the uh, one of the implications I get from this uh, is that, and I think First John teaches this as well, uh, is that John is trying to get us to understand that that is uh, often a very good a very good indicator, or if you will, a very good barometer to test the atmosphere of our love to God, uh, of, our, of our of our true love to neighbor. Uh, it, when it starts to be corrupted, I think John says it almost. Well, it, it inevitably is a love for God, and I think that uh, I think that John sets up this this particular pattern as well. Uh, in the next section, he talks about sins of omission and commission, and he talks about commission, and then he goes on to talk about omission. And, and uh, again, not don't have time really to deal in depth with this, but but um, but I think he says second paragraph on four thirty eight. The greatest omission man commits in his failure to obey the greatest commandment, which is, you know, the love, uh, the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, he, he says, who can say that he has loved the Lord with all his heart and his soul and all his mind and, and his strength? Of course, uh, none of us can say that in the sense that we want to uh, say that. Although he does say in the last paragraph in this section, Though the distinction between omission and commission illustrates an important and often neglect aspect of sin, we should recognize that every sin of omission uh, implies a sin of commission and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And again, I, there's this interconnectedness or the dimensionality, if you want to use that term, of sin. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a helpful distinction sometimes in omission and commission, but he says, Beaky says it, it sometimes uh, is artificial and sometimes unhelpful in the sense that we must understand that if we omit obedience to, to God or we com, uh, in, in not doing what he commands or commit something which he has revealed is against his will, that there's an interplay between the two of those actually that feeds each other. And, and we really cannot understand the true dimensions of the true scope or the true harm of that unless we understand that these bleed over into, into each other. And, and and again, I think the perfect example of that is in Romans 7, when he says, you know, I don't do the things I want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do. Yeah. I, think that, I, think that's a, I think that's a perfect example of what, 
uh, Beaky is trying to get at here. Commission and omission. Uh, they, they are a deadly blend. And again, in terms of sanctification, something you guys will flesh out as well. Uh, I, I think we need to understand that distinction. Next section goes in sins and thought, word, and deed. And he says actual sins involve both inward and outward acts and, are, and so are commonly defined as any failure to conform to God's law in thought, word, or deed. Uh, the inward and outward acts there, again, uh, is, is a helpful distinction. Uh, but again, as he's going to say, sometimes if we lean on those or we create too bright a line between those, we really are missing something. I, I, get, I think that's kind of the subtext of what he's saying here uh, is that it, it, whenever we examine sin like we would a, like we would a bacteria in a, in a microscope, uh, to some extent, we're chasing something. When we find it, we forget the fact that it's, that it's part of an organism. Uh, and that to study it artificially, then, uh, really, uh, I think sometimes is very helpful. Like if you're trying to find a bacteria, it's helpful to find it. But by the same token, I'm thinking about our brother Rick and this uh, osteomyelitis he has. Mm-hmm. It took him. It took him forever to find that. But when they did, I mean, uh, they actually are pouring hard antibiotics into his system in order to clear up an infection that showed itself in his toe. And that's the way sin is as well. I mean, we, uh, as he would say here, ultimately, it all gets back to God. All this gets back to God. Um, we can uh, talk about, and he talks about the social dimensions later, but, um, uh, but uh, on the top of 439, he says, external acts of praise and worship do not please God when the heart is far from him. And again, I mean, I, and this is a point he makes in this chapter that I like. We we can sin in our worship. <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we, we again, we we sometimes give ourselves a break on that, and, and a lot of people do. I mean, they measure their spirituality against, uh, well, am, am I worshiping? Whether it's private or public, most often it's, it's private. Uh, but he makes the point that even in, and sometimes especially uh, in our worship, can we can we uh, sin against God? Because he's very clearly said the way he desires to be, to be, uh, to be worshipped, uh, and there again, uh, it could be either a matter of commission or omission. There's that bleed over again. I think even in our worship, uh, where we can understand both parts of that as they're combined together. Second paragraph, four thirty-nine. The Lord Jesus made it clear that the law is spiritual and demands righteousness from the inside out. Uh, and again, this is a second one that if I were just to read it and walk away we would we would be edified on this but but i think this is very i think this is very very helpful the lord jesus made it clear that the law is spiritual and demands righteousness from inside out Uh, and that's why um uh, and that's why i think when jesus talks about sin and jesus uh and jesus talks about the depths of sin uh he uses the illustrations that we often cite in terms of murder starting with hatred or maybe even resentment of another person mm-hmm. adultery starting with uh, a, a fleeting glance that should be fleeting but yet it lingers uh, all these things start in the seed back there and they develop and they develop into a nasty fruit uh, uh, because he because he because the law is spiritual and that's what Jesus is saying there as well, in the sense that as we measure disobedience to the law, it's not just it's not just obedience to 
to the bare commandment itself, uh, which again is what not only ancient Judaism, but modern Judaism, at least Orthodox Judaism, that's what they do. They have their 500 some odd commandments and uh, the men spend, some of them spend a vocation actually just uh, doing casuistry or building case law. Uh, mm-hmm. on these things, talking about how does this commandment relate to this. And uh, it's a great intellectual a- exercise, but they actually miss the very heart of it when he says here the law is spiritual. And that is that uh, that the commandment itself has deep, deep roots, complex roots as uh, and and uh, poisonous roots, uh, diverse and poisonous, as, as Beaky would say here. And, and I think that when we're trying to get to this, and that's part of that idea about love for God being preeminent in this as well. Uh, that also comes back to play here in saying that law is spiritual. It, it is. Uh, it is a commandment that we understand, but ultimately it is a matter of a heart that's right before God. Uh, but he, he says, yet God does not focus it, it, in, exclusively upon the interior life. Uh, he demands that the word that the words of a man's tongue be good and the actions of his hands be clean. Uh, and sin in any part of the human constitution provides provokes God's wrath. He talks next on 440 about the domains of actual sin. Uh, and I won't go into this because that would take some time. But basically, he breaks down the Ten Commandments and into the two tables, the, uh, the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of our uh, of our sins and our relationships. And he, he talks about uh, in the domains of actual sin, where it is, for instance, okay. uh, in in, uh, in the second commandment, sins regarding uh, God's prescribed worship. Uh, people defile God's worship and insult his holiness when they add humanly invented images on forms of worship to what God has told us to do in worship. Uh, and he refers to this as a domain because it, uh, it it is, if you will, a compartment or a place where uh, a, a place where, uh, when we forget that the law is spiritual, uh, and we uh, begin to build a case law or be, begin to build structures as the Pharisees did against what is proper, um, and again, the Sabbath controversies where his disciples pluck weed and eat it, and he tells them about David and the showbread. Particularly, I've been I've been reading through Luke's Gospel, and uh, again, the Sabbath controversies regarding healing. Uh, and all of this, um, Jesus makes it very clear to demon and that, the, uh, that the, uh, that the Sabbath is, is, is for man's benefit. Uh, and so I think that's an aspect of that. Uh, the next section is diverse circumstances of actual sin. He says, uh, for, in for, beginning of 442 sins in public and secret. Uh, sins in public, I think we can summarize that by basically saying public sins are those which are uh, which we can see uh, if they are offenses against us for which we demand uh, some uh, reconciliation, restitution, whatever the case may be upon the nature of it. But he says that the biggest part of public sin is the fact uh, that even as a church that we must take it very seriously because as the Bible teaches, whether it's in the camp of, of Joshua as they're inhabiting the land, whether it's uh, Ananias and Sapphira or whatever, sin is a leaven that leavens a whole loaf. And that, that really is the whole the whole idea behind, uh, I think a large part of the idea behind dirt church discipline is the fact that it says not only to the church, but it says also to the world that 
that yeah. our that our existence is circumscribed, uh, that we belong to God, uh, and we take that very seriously in the fact that uh, purity is something that's demanded of us. And one of and when one of our members has departed from that, then uh, we're going to deal with it in such a way that if they do not repent, it publicly is clear the fact that we never no longer consider them certainly not a part of us, but certainly don't even consider them to be a believer anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so public, I think public sin, actually, he said very helpful here, is something that must be dealt with, not only because Jesus commands us to do it, but also just for the sake of the church. And also, if we want to put it in non-ecclesial, non-ecclesial terms, uh, even, even in a family, uh, public sin needs to be dealt with in terms of the poisonous, uh, uh, the poisonous uh, effects that it has on the relationships of family, marriage families, husbands and wives, children, uh, extended family, and so forth. He yeah. talks about sins of individuals and societies. Uh, he says the Bible does talk about individual re- responsibility and accountability, which we've been largely talking about. But he says it, do- it does also talk about social sins as well. That is, sins of the community or sins of the group. Um, and uh, as, as he says here, uh, and I thought this was very helpful. Um, uh, this is the third paragraph on 443. He says, sinful societies exercise powerful means to conform people to their corrupt expectations. And he cites Romans 12, too, which I think that's the conforming uh, rather than being transformed. And I, I think that's very Willem Terlink. <laughs> I, 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 I think it's Dutch. I, I think I got close. Uh, compared the world to a monster uh, to a, with three horns. And I have to read this. Wicked Number one, rick, wicked traditions and customs. Uh, number two, sinful celebrities and false models of success. And number three, a corrupt cultural system that uses promises of reward and threats of punishment to promote evil. Uh, and boy, I thought, yeah. of course, that, yeah, this was written like uh, what, uh, uh, five, five, six hundred years ago. Years ago, yeah. But I, I, I think it's, I think it's dead on. And he really, I think, gets to the heart there of of that of sinful societies and that. Uh, it not only is a real problem to which we contribute, but it has its own life within it. And particularly, I like his use of the word culture there, because culture literally means an environment in which things grow. We talk about cultures whenever we try to diagnose strep throat or something like that or some other mm-hmm. sort of illness. So it is also when we talk about culture and culture wars these days as Christians, uh, we understand we don't avoid culture. Culture is is the very environment in which not only do we live, but we live with others. Uh, and so if we do not promote the highest values and do not enforce those either by regulation or by spirit upon others, then we can't live together, not in any meaningful or uh, in a way that's not destructive. And, and he, he goes on in the next paragraph. He says that's true of churches as well. Churches themselves actually can have besetting sins or those that are part of them. And of course, he he cites the uh, uh, the seven churches in in uh, in Revelation to that effect, and I think that's the case as well. Uh, we see that by practical experience, uh, uh, as I've said before. I mean, I've supply preached in a lot of churches, whether whether it was in uh, Missouri or whether it was in Texas or wherever it was, uh, and uh, there is uh, 
uh, when you go into the door and you begin to relate, or even you can get a sense from, from just kind of an intangible sense or an incorporeal sense from when you enter, you can tell that there's conflict there and you can tell something wrong, even though you can't put your finger on it. On the other hand, however, one thing that we've had with people that have remarked about our church is they get those intangibles in terms of love and tangibles in terms of people actually reaching out to them. So that, again, it's a barometer of the, of the, uh, uh, of the healthiness of a church, uh, sins of oppressors and victims. Uh, again, he's talking here about another aspect of that, uh, a point, an important point he makes here. And I think he would probably write this differently if he were to write it again. Uh, he says, uh, we are, we're under an obligation actually, uh, to, uh, to love and to care for those whom God considers vulnerable. And, Again, the Old Testament is just full of that, particularly the prophets. And it was a major indictment in many cases against the nation of Israel because the, the, because the indicator was of how they treated the least among them was an indicator of how they treated God. That was, uh, again, going back to uh, Willard's uh, uh, thing there, uh, the flow to God is the flow to their neighbor is in that. And the point that the prophets make there is that your love for God has been transferred over to idols uh, and to things that are inanimate and unworthy of worship. And so consequently, we can tell as an indicator that how you abuse those uh, that are uh, that are least among you. Uh, next section, 445 degrees of actual sin uh, over. Uh, overreacting, underreacting. I'm going to leave the, the bulk of this to Will as he talks about the pro proportionality of sin. But one thing I will mention, he talks about the Roman Catholic distinction between mortal and venial sin. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a, I think that's an important point there as well, uh, because he, he says mortal sin is that which will bring you out of a, out of a state of grace and for which you need the sacrament of penance and confession in order to get back into that uh, venial sins are basically or I ate too much yesterday or uh, something like that. Something that you can still be in a state of grace and do that. Uh, Calvin blows that out of the water uh, as we would expect that he would. Uh, he says, however, it's also there to consider all sins to be of equal weight. Uh, and he, and again, I'm going to delay this discussion to Will as well, proportionality of sins, but he says there are extenuating circumstances in punishment. And he does, I think, a very good uh, problem, uh, a job of that on 446 um, when he asks the question, what makes some sins more heinous than others? The Bible reveals multiple factors that aggravate sin. Uh, he says the person of the sinner, uh, the person against whom one sins, the extent of sin's action, the perversity of the sinner's reason, uh, the height of the sinner's defiance, the depth of sin's abnormality, the holiness of the sinner's situation. Uh, it is a disservice to God and to each other to have a uh, to have a flat book or flat plain view of sin as all sin is equal, uh, when in reality it's not. Uh, there are some sins that are more extensive and and uh, and are I, I think that uh, Beaky would say here there's sins against light. I think that that although he doesn't say it, that's the way I would put it. Uh, really, the greater punishment for sin is the sin against light. If you know to do something or to not do something and you do it, 
and you be- begin to develop a, a, a callous or hardened uh, conscience and, and heart as a result of that, the deeper you go into that, the more extensive the penalty should be. As Jesus says, again, in, in, in the Gospels, he talks about uh, the cities of Galilee, uh, Bethsaida, and so forth, and said, be more tolerable in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for you. Well, Sodom and Gomorrah were a mess. I mean, <laughs> again, we cite them these days in terms of the perversity of our own culture. But the sin of, uh, uh, the, sin of, the, of the cities in Galilee was that they sinned against light. Jesus was the light, and they refused the light. So I, th- I think that's I think that's very helpful. And again, that's it. We're towards the end. I well, th- thank you that. so much, brother. Uh, one thing I do want to point out, very very important. You quoted him, Marvin, as you were going through uh, Willem, or as you said, proper pronunciation, Willem, Willem. Uh, yeah. T-Link or T-Link. Uh, he he's a Dutch author. Uh, you spell his last name T E E L L I N C K. His book, The True Path of uh, the Path of True Godliness, is in a series that Reformation Heritage Books has republished. They're doing a lot of uh, of, of, of Dutch reformers, and it's in a series called Classics of Reformed Spirituality. These books are all about the doctrine of sanctification, and I would say if I could make it required reading, that everyone get that. I think it's about three hundred pages. But it, it's going to be some of the best 300 pages you have ever read on the doctrine of sanctification. Again, the name of the book is The Path of True Godliness. You can go to uh, Reformation Heritage Books. It's uh, heritagebooks.org, and yeah. uh, and you can find that book there. And uh, in Reformation Heritage Books, it's nonprofit, so you can always find the best prices on those. I would highly recommend anyone listening to this pick up that book and just make it a point to just work your way through that on whatever reading schedule you could, your soul will, will greatly profit from it. So yeah, well, as, as a good podcast would say, you'll put a link in the show notes, right? <laughs> well, uh, I'll, I'll send it to uh, Michael Quintes and see if he can do that. I don't know how to do that. There, there, but, uh, there good. Good enough, yeah, good I, I can do that. I can do that. Well, let, let's turn the corner. Will, uh, Let's talk about the punishment of God, Will. And I think uh, I think when people think about that, when people say, does God punish sin? Yes, God punishes sin. They're automatically thinking about the ultimate condemnation of the unforgiven sinner in hell. But, but there's so much more to that. So, brother, help us understand more of these dimensions when we talk about the punishment of sin by God. Sure. So Marvin was talking about how there is a difference between original sin and actual sin and that actual sin was the fruit of original sin. Right. And then went into yeah. all this detail about the differences in degree and dimension of sin. Um, now we're moving on to talking about punishment. And I like the opening line of the chapter it says, just as God is blessed and the source of all happiness. So sin is accursed and the root of all misery. God's word teaches us that sin is a Pandora's box that once opened unleashes a flood of evil upon the world. Hmm. Uh, And so the promise from the beginning of Genesis was that if you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And that's where we are with the punishment of sin. Sin, the punishment of sin is ultimately death and separation of God. So there's two aspects to it. Um, the first is the it's the pain of loss and the pain of sorry 
I just had it and I just lost it. Loss of communion. Thank you. Loss of the pain of loss. Oh, wait, that wasn't. The pain of loss and the pain of sense is the two different aspects of sin. And so when it's talking about the pain of loss, it's the loss of communion of God. And then there's also the infliction of pain under God's wrath. And so it goes back to that scripture in Matthew where Jesus says, depart from me for I never knew you. And you who workers of iniquity, they'd be cast into hell. So there's two different aspects to one is you're, you're losing that connection with God. And that goes all the way back to the garden. God was dwelling with his people. And when they committed that sin, they suffered that loss of communion with God. And then the second aspect of it is the infliction of pain under God's wrath. And that's where we see you're not only being separated from God, but you're separating from God into a place of torment. Um, Thomas Aquinas said, insofar as sin consists in turning away from God, its corresponding punishment is the pain of loss. But insofar as sin turns inordinately uh, to the immutable good, its corresponding punishment is the pain of sense. The loss of beautific vision of God and the infliction of the pains of hellfire. So then it goes on to talk about how God, sin breaks communion with God. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So because God can't be in the presence of sin because he's holy and he's just and he's good, then we who commit sin are separated from that. But sin also provokes God's wrath because he's just. God is a just God. God can't tolerate sin. And so a lot of people hear wrath and they think that it's um, mean, it's cruel. But in reality, God's wrath in 453 on the second full paragraph, it says God's wrath is not cruelty, but zealous justice against sin, which is committed against the most high majesty of God. And so Abiki's talking about here, I, I've heard this from different analogies. Um, I believe it was Vody Bakum that had the CEO analogy. Imagine you created a company and you invested all of your resources into this company. You formed it. You created the LLC, all the paperwork, all the structures. You invested all the capital. You built this company from nothing and it's turned into this massive company. And then somebody comes in to your company and starts giving orders. Somebody comes in to your company and starts using your resources. Somebody comes, to your, comes into your company and starts doing all these things, calling customers, canceling orders, really messing with the, the working of your company. It's your company. You built it. How would you feel? And that's what we're talking about with the just and holy God. God created everything. God created us. He created all of us. Every aspect of our life is a creation, a handiwork of God. And then when we start trying to usurp that authority and say that we have autonomy, that we know better than God, it's the same thing as somebody who leaves or who goes into somebody else's company and starts giving the orders. And mm. so that same indignation that you would have if somebody came into your company or into your home and started giving orders and telling your kids what to do, that same indignation is the indignation and wrath that God has for people who try to usurp him. Now, there are two different um, aspects of punishment. There's the punishment of 
a temporal aspect of punishment and an eternal aspect of punishment. The temporal aspect of punishment is God's wrath is active to punish sin in the world. He's angry with the wicked every day. And there are things that God does to inflict punishment temporally on earth. Now, he talks about um, there's different, there's inward and outward punishments. Inward punishments are aimed primarily at the soul. And outward punishments are upon the body in our circumstances. And so there's a few different aspects to this, but you have one is through judgment. Some of the aspects of judgment on the soul is abandonment to sin. Acts 7, 42, Paul's exposition of the wrath of God in Romans 1 does not feature outward judgments so much as inward ones through the unrepentant statement that God gave them up or gave them over to their sin. So one of the things that God does in judging us temporally is giving us up to our sin saying, sure, go ahead, have at it. If you're not a believer and he hasn't saying he hasn't set you apart, that whole letting somebody go ahead and continue on in their sin and not immediately taking their life is a judgment of God. Another aspect of inward punishment is hardening and unbelief. So somebody hears the word and then they they don't believe it. Somebody hears the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ and they don't believe it. That's that's actually a judgment of God on that person and hardening them in their unbelief. Hmm. Um, we should never, and so I like 455, he says, we should never conceive of judicial abandonment or hardening in such a manner that would implicate God in sin as if he infused or encouraged moral evil in the soul. God cannot be tempted to sin and cannot tempt others, but is the giver of every good gift. The Lord does not abandon or harden sinners by the addition of evil, but by the subtraction of good. Mm, that's good. And the, the, when I read this, I thought of this analogy of when somebody is being petulant and, you, you know, a parent is just like keeps, you know, saying, nope, don't do that. Nope, don't do that. Take them away. And they keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. And then finally, you just like, oh, yeah, okay, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And they do it and then they fall and they get hurt. That's kind of what God is doing here. And it's not that God is adding evil to something, but he's withholding. He's taking off his hand of restraint. Does that make sense? Like that God is not. He's just taking off the good constraints that he's placed on us for our own protection and is allowing people to sin, allowing people to go into that judgment. Yeah. In other words, it's not a positive working of sin or evil in the heart it's just god like you said taking a step back just withdrawing he's not right. he doesn't actually have to add anything to it right in, in what i thought of was that you're not it's a mistake to think uh, again this goes back to this theory of moral neutrality mm-hmm. people think that they're morally neutral and that there's either evil they have a choice to do evil or a choice to do good but really we are corrupt we're totally depraved people who desire no good thing and it's only through the grace of god that we can be made righteous so it's not as if god is taking a morally neutral person and punishing that person god is just choosing not to bless or not to uh rescue somebody who is already morally depraved somebody who's orally corrupt morally corrupt and totally corrupt somebody who has already who is already set in a fixed direction against God, God is choosing not to 
by God's choosing to punish that, he's not adding on, on to their evil. He's just not restraining them anymore. Yeah. Does that so, make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Would, that, would that be related to culture then? Not yeah, just an absolutely. individual, but actually the group of people. And it yeah, goes yeah, back, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, didn't he say, didn't he say, like it's a subtraction of good, he's he's subtracting that common grace that all, right. yeah. yeah. Yeah, that common grace. And so you see that when you see corruption, when you see, uh, when you see somebody like in Romans 1, that they've just given them up to a depraved mind, it's not, it's not God inflicting evil it's god withholding the good things and so it's it helps you understand one every good thing that we have in life any kind of moral aspect to our lives is nothing short of the grace of god exactly and when you want to talk about a an atheistic society or a society that has no god in it that's the chaos that's the ultimate corruption that we see any bad thing you see in society is a society that where god's restraining hand has been lifted mm -hmm. and it's kind of a silly thing, but I don't know if y'all have seen Batman begins. Have you seen that? Movie? All right. You'd have to remind me who the villain is in that one. Batman begins <laughs> is with Christian Bale. Um, he, oh, I did see that one. Okay. He goes to the league of shadows and he's okay. being yeah. taught by Raz Al Ghul. And at the end, have you guys seen the end of the movie? Cause there's going to be a spoiler alert here. Cause it, this is what I thought of when I read this. Uh, yeah, my my I, Batman I, I career seen. ended, I, I think, in the 80s or 90s. Okay. When, uh, who so, was the guy? The Nicholson guy was the Joker. I think that was the last. Lay it Batman out. Tell us. <laughs> so, so anyway, they're I'm on out of touch. The, here's the setup. They're on the, it's the end of the movie. Batman's trying to keep Raz al Ghul from completely destroying Gotham. Right? And so this train is heading into Wayne Tower, which is the center of the city. And he's about to, like, essentially ruin the whole city. And um, he's fighting with him on the train and he gets Raz al Ghul in a submissive permission, but he's not killing Raz. And he goes, Raz al Ghul looks at him and says, see, you're not, you're not willing to do what needs to be done. Like he's, he's basically baiting him into trying to kill him. And he says, I don't have to kill you. He goes, but I, I don't have to save you either. And he jumps off the train and lets Raz al Ghul just like die in the crash. And that's kind of what God is doing here is yeah. that God is saying, I'm not, I don't have to save you or it is like, I'm not killing you. I'm not, I'm not inflicting this punishment or I'm not inflicting this evil punishment, but I don't have to save you either. Yeah. And so when I, when I read that, my mind immediately went <laughs> to that scene in Batman Begins where he's like, that, that's really I good. You, but I don't have to save you either. Well, is that, is that also the, the grounds upon which we can say uh, that there's no contradiction between when, when uh, the Bible says that, God hardened Pharaoh's heart and, and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same thing. And just, just different aspects of it. Right. Now here's a, a, a more difficult concept. So we see we're moving on from punishments um, through judgments on the soul where God's hardening people's heart. God is abandoning people to their sin, but also there is punishments through the body. Uh, and judgments in, inflicted in real, very real ways temporally. Um, there's a lot of illustrations here. Um, and this is something we really have to be very careful about in uh, yeah, we theology do. because we really do. there is a, a charismatic Pentecostal teaching that kind of says if you are 
or experiencing any bodily affliction, then there's there's some kind of unrepentant sin that you have to you have to repent of. There's something that you've done. It's kind of like what Job's friends said to him at the beginning of Job. There must be something you've done to invoke God's wrath here. And we see in Job that's not the case. Sometimes we don't always know why God is allowing us to go through affliction, but we can trust that he is good. So, but there are times though, where judgments on the body can be an affliction or the affliction can be a judgment on the body. Um, There's a lot of scripture references to where God can bring famine to a region by infestation or drought. He gives examples in Leviticus 26, 19 through 20, Deuteronomy 28, 22 through 24 and 38 through 39. Another thing is God can attack the basis of a nation's wealth leading to economic disaster in Isaiah 19, 5 through 10. And God can use a people to suffer military defeat and conquest in Deuteronomy 28, 25 through 26 and Isaiah 13, 17 through 19. He can destroy public works, places of worship and infrastructure. He can subjugate people under tyranny and oppression. He can scatter people as exiles from their homes. God can open the door for violent crime and injustice to increase. He can send wasting and disabling illness. So if sinners do not repent, then the Lord can simply kill them. Death is the fate of Adam's descendants. It is God who executes this final temporal judgment upon mankind. But these ideas, these temporal judgments serve to restrain sin. Mm-hmm. So the question becomes, and this is one of the questions at the end of the chapter, uh, the question is, how can someone discern whether his sufferings in this life are judgments sent as punishment of his sins by an angry God? And when can somebody say that's not because of a judgment, but just because we are living in a fallen world? What's the difference? How do we how do we tease that out? Yeah, that's a great. Uh, and I think that I think this is kind of like my chapter as well. It's not an either or it's a both and uh, because even uh, temporal judgments upon the body indeed have an effect upon the soul and, and vice versa. Again, you cited Job, and I think that's a great example to cite. But again, the two of those work together. Uh, I think we need to be very careful, as you said, about uh, not jumping to conclusions as uh, the as the, the people did around Jesus on the man born blind. We had that. They had that theological philosophical discussion there. Uh, but I, I, I think that the mixture of those two, and that's again, because of the complex nature of it, the mixture of those two is that uh, if you get one, you get aspects of the other as well, it seems to me. Right. And I think really what it comes down to, this is where I had to wrestle with it from reading the whole punish, the whole chapter. It talks about the conscience. Yeah, and exactly. On, exactly. The, on the indiv- on an individual level, on a societal right. level, you can see. Right. Just take a step back and detach from your society and look around you and see: Does my society honor the Lord or does it not? Yep. And if it's not honoring the Lord, you're going to see temporal aspects of punishment on your society. But in an individual level, this is where the conscience comes in. If you have been saved, if you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, then the affliction that you may be suffering unless if your conscience is clear before God, that you haven't done any kind of sin to, to uh, justify any kind of affliction, then then you can have the assurance that it's not a sin, but a, a temporal affliction because we live in a fallen and broken world. Right. And also think about this. 
God does not punish you without letting you know that you're being punished, right? Like you're not going to, you're not going to experience some kind of affliction without an immediate recognizing from the Lord. If the Lord is really, if you've been saved, you're, there isn't going to be this this affliction without some kind of knowledge of this is what the cause is. Does that's that exactly what Hebrews is saying. Yeah. Uh, it refers to chastisement and says it's something that you that you recognize. It's not pleasant, but you know when it's happening. I think you're on good ground in saying that. Yeah, and Beaky wrote in here. I mean, I think I think he used the phrase "notorious sinner." So it's it's yeah. basically you're talking about someone who. I mean, it's very clear they they are living a life of of full on sin in one way or form or fashion. He said that basically you can look at that and you can know that that is the the justice of God being meted out by way of punishment. Now it may be other things as well, but he exactly. said it's safe to say that we can glorify God for His justice in that situation, being what right. it is. And I think even like you said, going to to the the question you asked, I think the sinner can realize that that, that if I am living my life, you know, I've, I've drifted from the Lord in my relationship with him and I'm entering into grievous sins, uh, continual sins, sins that maybe all three of you guys have approached me about. And I'm basically turning a deaf ear to you. And I suffer tragedy in my life and affliction and things like that. Well, I think it's safe to say, we know God is, is doing this temporal punishment here because of my sins, but but I don't think we can say, well, he may be doing 50 or 500 other different things as well, right. but it is clear. I mean, my sin calls for that. And when he meets it out, it it, it is a result of that, um, you know, his, his justice in my life, which equals, you know, the punishment for sin temporally. Right. And I think that it's important to note too, that have, even just having the thought of, is this an affliction from the Lord? You wouldn't have that if you didn't. I don't know how to put this. You wouldn't have that thought unless there was some kind of reason to. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you, you wouldn't. Yeah, unless you had that relationship with God, where you would expect Him to right. uh, to uh, bring, say, an affliction in order to right. correct you. Yeah. And sometimes, so if you're, so what I'm thinking is, if you have somebody who is in, continuously in sin, and then all these things start happening to them and around them, and it's bringing them to this, I, they're they're starting to turn towards the Lord. It's 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 a both and situation. You're living in a fallen world, but also these things are serving a purpose to bring your attention to God mm-hmm. and to your need for God, um, and that's where the conscience comes in. So those are that's an inward judgment, and there also is an outward judgment um, by civil government. Capital punishment um, was so that men would inflict the death penalty upon anyone who willfully murdered another human being. Uh, God reinforces the inward work of the conscience through the outward work of the civil magistrate in punishing sin. And, and it, he goes on to say that the execution of civil justice restrains sin of, in a society. Tom Schreiner says, even the most oppressive governments hold evil in check to some extent, preventing society from collapsing into complete anarchy. And so you have, through criminal punishment, benefits society and the church the primary purpose of the judicial system is justice. Uh, Herman Babington uh, noted that modern society has viewed criminals as victims and turned crime into a disease and punishment into a means of cure. However, punishment is imposed in the first place, not because it, it is useful, but because justice requires it. And that's something I can tell you 
on a personal level, things that I've experienced in court is yeah. that there is this ma major trend of trying to justify yeah. crime by saying, well, it's circumstantial, it's addiction, it's all these things, but really at right. the heart of it, it, it probably is that to some extent, but also it's, it's a violation of the law and a violation of the law is, is sin. And sin is the root cause of all evil. And so society, the Lord is, excuse me, God has um, used the civil government um, by giving them a sword in order to uh, restrain injustice. So that's one, that's the outward uh, expression of the judgment of sin. May, may I say something there? Yeah. Yeah, when, when I was reading this section about the you know civil authorities and, and stuff, you know, it's like we we have a reverent fear and uh, uh, respect for the God's law, God's word, but then we're supposed to also have the the same fear because uh, the civil authorities have given you know they're, they're a God ordained uh, structure for us to keep us safe and to protect us. But yeah. and that and I just wrote in the margin, uh, this is where our culture has failed. There is no. Uh, it appears that the, there is no fear of the law or fear of prosecution today. I mean, we see criminals just going in and just, you know, destroying property, taking taking goods, and they get a slap on the wrist and they're out and they repeat it, you know, two, two days later. I mean, just no respect or fear for us, uh, civil law anymore. I think that's the poisonous fruit of critical race theory, taking uh, an idea who at the kernel has some truth to it, but blowing it out. And, uh, 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 Will, I think I, I asked you back when we had, you had the case of the, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember the details of it, but, uh, the, the guy, the former baseball coach in Gloucester that, that, that was he the one that killed someone else or did someone kill him? I, I can't remember the particulars of that. But um, I had, yeah, go ahead. I, I thought if it's the case I'm thinking of, <clears throat> the former baseball coach ended up being shot by the police. Okay, that's it. That's it. That's it. Come at them with the firearm. And yeah, and that there that again was where I asked you the question. Okay, in, in Gloucester County, does that look like we're going to have those elements of where you see, say, in Minneapolis or some other places like that, where there's going to be. Um, and us versus them or uh, an idea that uh, that they're uh, not just uh, uh, not just uh, um, sociological or cultural influences, but actually the wielding of power uh, against him. In other words, kind of like a Black Lives Matter sort of thing. And I think he told me, no, that they didn't. No, there wasn't any kind of real backlash. It was more of just right. a lament. Exactly. That, that that man had had um, whatever it caused him to turn that corner and right. and get to the point where he didn't care whether he lived or died. Right. And ended up taking some shots at some law enforcement officers. Um, it was just it was more of a sad situation and a yeah. tragedy all around. And I think the majority of the community felt the same way. I don't think anybody's held the officers at fault for that. Um, yeah. They. I know it's something I know these officers personally, and, and I know that's not something that they exactly they uh, enjoy doing. It's not it's probably the the hardest part of being a police officer right. is to make that judgment call. Yeah. And um, but but no, thankfully, there wasn't any kind of right 
retribution against the police for that. Um, for that. That's that's where the blurring there of the yeah. wielding of power comes in, in the sense that okay, um, power is corrupted because again, it's a white white a racial thing, white versus right. black. Uh, in other words, the man is is going to get his is is going to let him off or, or yeah. this. Uh, but thankfully, it sounds like you're saying that we still have a sense of a sense of justice at that point and understanding and proportionality. Yeah. So what we've been talking about temporal judgments of sin and these temporal judgments are are meant to wake up the sinner into the realize their need for a savior. Because the alt, there's going to be an ultimate judgment of sin and that mm-hmm. ultimate judgment is where you see in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says, depart from me, be cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devils and his angels. God's wrath is, there's going to be coming a day when God is going to uh, drop his restraining hand and he will inflict punishment for the sins that are committed. He's going to, his wrath, his righteousness is going to be displayed in its full glory and those who haven't repented are going to suffer the consequences there's going to be a day when you will be eternally separated from the god who created you and you are going to be eternally punished in a again it says pain of loss and pain of sense you're going to have, be separated from god and you're going to be sent into the into hell for your sin and it goes on the last part of of chapter 24 talks about the 10 aspects or excuse me eight aspects of god's wrath it's irresistible in its force. It's inconceivable in its power. It's unbearable in its effects. It's infinite in its reach. It's unavoidable in its punishment. It's constant in its exercise. And it's eternal in its duration. And finally, it's righteous in its judgment. God's righteous wrath will be displayed one day. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing in these temporal judgments on sin is is a should be a wake-up call to say there will come a day when these temporal judgments you think this is bad now just wait and that should that should cause the sinner to repent and trust in christ and it should cause the christian to be motivated to evangelize and to to get out there and, and to spread the gospel because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god so if you really love jesus and you really love god just like marvin was saying our love for man is through the stream in our love to God. Mm-hmm. And one of the sins of omission that people commit, even in the church today is to not tell other people about Jesus mm-hmm. because Jesus made the command, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. That is our, our standing order as Christians. You don't have to have the gift of evangelism to do it. You just got to do it and be faithful. God calls us to be faithful not to be perfect. And this chapter should motivate the Christian to realize that there is going to be a punish. God punishes sin. And that should be comforting to us as a believer that our punishment has been taken on the cross, but also it should be convicting us to evangelize the loss because we do not want, if we truly love our neighbor as we love ourselves, we should not be quiet. We should not be silent. We should be motivated through love of the Lord and love of our neighbor to witness to the loss, to plead with people to repent and put their faith in Christ. 
Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. Wow, what a what a responsibility we have. So we should love our neighbor and go out to them and, and give them this gospel that will save them from this, especially this final thing you've talked about, this unending sense of loss and unending punishment that they will face. So that is our responsibility to our lost neighbors. Now, Mike, what about our relationship to to this sin as believers? You know, we've talked about yeah. uh, a lot of the aspects of sin between Marvin and, and I, you know, him talking about actually committing sins as arise out of our nature. We'll talk about the consequences both in this life and in the life to come uh, for sins. But so, brother, how, how do we battle this uh, as believers? And I know you're kind of under a hard break. So, brother, you, you take all the time you need. And when, okay. when, when you have to stop, just uh, Marvin, if you'll close us in prayer and, and then sure. we'll be done. But but Mike, help us in this. OK, OK, I'm, I'll just go through. I, I kind of outlined the, uh, the the chapter, but I, I've got it marked in my book as well. Of course, I, I like course you to... did. Of course you did. You didn't even <laughs> <me> say it. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way he begins uh, uh, with the introduction. Nothing reveals more about a person than how he relates to, to his sins. All people have consciences that accuse them of wrong when they go against what they perceive as God's will. Many people feel remorse. However, only those to whom God has granted new hearts hate sin as sin and turn it to the true God. Yet even, as, uh, yet even they are mixtures of sin and righteousness in this life. They, they, they are regenerated and are being sanctified, but yet have not been glorified. Um, so he goes into the, the believer's response, all believers' response to sin, and he starts out with uh, our, our, what should our response be to sin? Um, and he, he starts out by saying in that first paragraph, to encounter God is to have one's sins exposed. I mean, that's, that's to me, that's when you see, when your sins are exposed or when you see how sinful you are compared to a righteous and holy God, I mean, that to me, that's, that's the first thing you see when you're regenerated. You say, man, I am so filthy. I'm so mm. sinful compared to the holy and righteous God that, that he is. Uh, uh, so we got to, you know, our sins are exposed as a result of our sins exposed. Uh, God, you know, it says when God converts a sinner, conviction becomes a uh, contrition, a deep inward brokenness over sin. So our proper response should be, I mean, contrite, a, a broken spirit, a broken heart. Um, and um, see, then he goes on um, uh, re regarding the, um, the believer's response. He said, God cares little about uh, uh, ornate buildings. Uh, his, his favorite temple is a person who is humble and broken under his word. So once we're convicted of our, our, our sins and we see it uh, and we, we come to, to hate sin, the evil of the sin, um, then, uh, you know, our, God's word should be what should be feeding us and, and helping us uh, uh, stay the change of direction that we take in our lives. What we, what we uh, previously loved and worshiped should be um, uh, should we should turn away from it. We should turn to uh, the things of, of the love of God, the love of his word. Uh, but however, he warns, he said, uh, uh, whatever God, whatever route God may bring sinners to his son, all true members of God's kingdom have this in common. They are poor in spirit. We're still poor in spirit. And we need to remember that. Uh, uh, and he, he highlights Christ's church. He also brings the church in. Christ's church is not a proud people, but a bruised reed that Christ tenderly nurtures by his Holy Spirit as he brings justice to the nations. 
So, I mean, uh, he, he's channeling a little uh, Richard Sibbs there, the Puritan bruisery. Yeah. Uh, and then he says, therefore, we may summarize the believer's response to sin as humility. Um, and then uh, he quotes Wilmus, A. Breco. He says, humility issues forth from a right judgment of oneself, the humble acknowledgement they have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They are worthy of having been cast into hell long ago. So uh, um, the essence of humility, the, the loneliness of heart, it should, it, he said it should impose both pride that puffs up in the heart of arrogance and the despondency that casts them down in despairs. Then he goes in, you know, okay, so we, we know how we stand against the holy and righteous God, how, how we look at that. But then there's the actual confession of sin. Um, confession of sin continues to characterize the, uh, the believer's life after conversion. So the confession of sin is a continuous thing. We, we, we are sinners. We have that. Uh, I like the how the, in the, in the uh, chapter was it, the first chapter 23, when it talks about the uh, the uh, the. Uh, the corruption of the, uh, of the of the body and stuff. We still have corrupt, uh, corruption in us because we li we live in a fallen world and we're not fully glorified yet. We're still going through sanctification, so we continue to sin. But our confession of our sins should be a characteristic of our life. If we're a true, genuine uh, believer, our life should be characterized by confession of, of sin. And again, it is the church. The church also uh, is a local body of believers. The church should also be should be confessing its sins as well. Um, to see, and we don't hide our sins. Uh, rather, we shouldn't be covering up our sins uh, uh, or hiding and deceit. We we uh, should be confessing our sins, and and what we should be hiding is we should be hiding in the mercy of God, and that's what he says here. We should be hiding uh, in God's mercy. Um, and then he goes in, uh, talks about the uh, a true uh, child of God or the children of God walk in the light. Walking in the light means conducting oneself in obedience to God's command, especially the command to love one another. However, walking in the light does not mean living without sin, but confessing one's sin when the light of God's word exposes them. So again, to me, that implies that for a genuine believer, our, our response to, to sin should be that I mean we're, we're 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 we have a love for God's word. We have a discipline to be in God's word, to to read His truths, to have God reveal His truth to us. And as a result, the reading God's truth exposes us to our sin. It brings to light uh, uh, what's the, where we're sinning. Um, and I again, uh, he goes on later on the chapter. I, I kind of uh, jump to some of the comments he made at the end. Um, to be aware, I mean, that's why part of uh, when we go to uh, corporate worship or in, in our Bible study hour before that, we're hearing God's word and uh, it's making us aware of God's law, God's truth and how we should be living uh, our lives, the, the daily living, uh, Christian living. Uh, it, it exposes us to or makes us aware of and it. And sometimes, as uh, others have said, you know, and, and even me, you, you hear God's truth preached from the pulpit and it just, it stings you and say, hey, man, I'm, that's, that's me. <laughs> that's what I'm doing. Um, and then uh, a repentance. Uh, so we have the, the, uh, the change. Then we have the confession. But, uh, but it's the repentance. And I, I, I couldn't find it. I didn't have time. But uh, the, um, 
uh, when we repent of sins, there, there should be a humble, the, the humble response to sin goes beyond confession. It complete, com, in, includes a heartfelt repentance of sin. And earlier in our readings and previous podcast, we talked about we really need to understand what the, the essence of uh, true repentance means. And uh, so I, I wish I had that bookmark. I could go back there, but I, I, I can't remember it off the top of my head. But the gospel message demands repentance of sal- uh, repentance for salvation. And then he says saving salvation or saving repentance is not just a change of beliefs or religious decisions, but a complete reorientation of one's uh, reinter- reorientation of a person by grace. And then he brings in the, uh, uh, the larger catechism, the uh, Westminster larger catechism on question 76, uh, what the meaning of repentance uh, in a manner that we can analyze according to motives, uh, and source and acts. And then uh, he goes into the divine source of repentance, the motives of repentance and the essential acts of repentance. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, and, and uh, well, let's see, I'll just, I'll just uh, repentance marks the beginning of the Christian's life and characterizes all the way through the end. So uh, confession of sins, uh, seeing who we are uh, against a holy and righteous God, the confession of our sins, but being repentant of those sins, you know, having a true repentance of, of our, that we, we, we have sinned. And when we sin, what, is, what does that do uh, to our relationship with our Holy Father? Um, um, and then uh, again, he, he uh, summarizes at the end of the last chapter in, uh, or in the last paragraph of that section, which is at the top of page 471. Set your mind on the promises of the gospel that the goodness of God in Christ may woo you away from sin back to your loving Father. Cultivate friendships with godly people and invite them to correct your transgressions. Uh, so, when I was going through, uh, reading through this uh, again earlier this morning, I mean, in each section, he says this is the the response of 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 a of a uh, the sin and the believer, and he kind of summarizes it. So it's all building up. I mean, it's like a okay, here's what happens, but then here's how you 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 take actions or steps to to combat this. And again, it, as mentioned earlier this morning. Um, it's putting on the full armor of God, but putting it on properly and using it properly. And then he goes into faith in Christ. So as a, as a believer, uh, uh, our, our, our faith is going to be strengthened as we go through and, and have this uh, confessing our sins, being repentant, growing in the knowledge and understanding of God's word, sharing that with others. Mm-hmm. So uh, faith is... Uh, Faith, we, we have uh, our salvation through faith. And it says, faith is the empty hand by which we receive Christ with the saving benefits. We have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified. Christians also believe in Christ in order to be sanctified. Um, God has, t- and he goes on, he says, God has taught us to the Christian to say, in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. Believers must look to Christ daily as their justifying righteousness. And then he uh uh, he, he brings in sanctifying strength, but we almost also rely on his sanctifying strength. Um, we must be strong in the Lord and strong in his might, a power of his might. That kind of remind me uh, uh, of, uh, of the sermon when we talk about in the, in the, in the, in, in the Lord's might, and the power of his might, his strength. Yep. Uh, to put sin to death, we must set our hearts on things above where Christ 
where Christ sits at the right hand of the Father for, uh, for Christ is our life. So to me, uh, the uh, response of the, of, the, of, the, of the believer, of the sinner is uh, full faith and trust in Christ. I mean, uh, that's where our focus needs to be for our life. It's focused on God, a God-centered uh, life, a God-centered uh, uh, response to things, uh, showing our love for Christ, our love for the, our brethren. Um, and then he goes in about uh, prayer for the Spirit's grace. Uh, is, and he talks about the uh, that uh, if for a, a believer, I mean, our, our faith, one of the uh, indicators of our faith is, is uh, prayer. Uh, he says faith uh, breeds out prayer and faith in Christ for justifying and sanctifying grace expresses itself and prayers for the same. And then he said, and he says, when we pray, he said, um, I'll just read it. The Lord Jesus Christ taught us to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. To enter into temptation refers to a situation of severe testing in which our weaknesses are exposed to Satan's assault. Evil in this context refer, refers to the moral evil or sin. It may specifically refer to Satan uh, for the adjective is singular and, and singular, the evil one. Therefore, just as we should pray daily for our physical needs, so we should ask God each day for protection against and deliverance from sin. Uh, and then the, he goes in and gives examples that uh, the, the Psalms teach the godly to pray uh, for God to empower us to combat sin. And, and we do that in our prayers uh, uh, as a church. And, I, and, and as an individual, that's one thing that I pray for for myself and Kathleen. And when I pray for our church, our church leaders, I pray that, hey, you know, shield, shield the, our, our, uh, our elders, our leadership from the, the darts and Satan, the darts of, uh, of Satan. Mm -hmm. um, and then we uh, one thing, too, that as we grow, we and we always need to be watchful uh, that he talks about uh, on page 473. We need to be watchful against temptation. Uh, we've been told to be prepared and to keep watch for the for the coming of the Lord, but we also need to be watchful for uh, the temptations that may uh, come our way, and uh, and on guard. And and it's, it's more than just being uh, awake, uh, but we need to be. Um, I like the way he said it. He said we need to be active in our in our in our actions. We need to be active in our actions uh, as we are watchful. And, um, and he says um, on page 473, the, the last paragraph, and he quotes Brakel, uh, 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 said spiritual watch watchfulness consists in watching over our soul in a careful and circumspective manner, in a circumspective manner uh, in order that no evil may befall her. Uh, the opposite of watchfulness is spiritual lethargy, inattention, and laziness. We are by nature very drowsy, but the enemies are wakeful and are tireless in the execution of their assault. Therefore, we must guard our hearts. So he, to me, it goes back to the message that uh, we need to be active uh, in our guard. We need to be uh, constantly, uh, what I would say, and uh, in, in, you build a defense and you're on guard, you're constantly doing position improvement. So we should be constantly in God's word, reading it, gaining a better understanding of it, asking uh, God to reveal more of his truth to us so that we're strengthening ourselves. We're not being lazy and just sitting back and say, okay, uh, I'm ready. No, we, we gotta be, it's got to be an active defense, an active uh, stand against the enemy. Mm -hmm.
And then uh, he goes on, uh, let me think. And I guess I'll just jump over to the, the believer's paradox of the, the believer's paradoxical, parad, paradoxical experience of sin. So um, we, we still experience sin, even all believers still experience sin or battling sin. So, um, so it's important that we maintain a balanced perspective uh, um, so that we don't go, so don't, we don't grow either um, uh, confident or that we don't uh, become too discouraged. We're still going to be combated by sin and there are things that we can do. So, I mean, uh, our, our walk, our sanctification process is not going to be easy. It's going to be challenging for which we need to be prepared. We need to be on guard, active guard. Uh, and then, um, uh, he uh, goes in and starts talking about it, and he talks about the forgiveness of guilt, but with appropriate shame. And I guess the essence of that section would be, uh, hey, our sins have been forgiven through the uh, through the uh, through the shed blood of Christ on the cross, where he uh, our sins were imputed to him and his righteousness to us. But as a true believer, in our response, I mean, where those sins are forgiven, but we should still, uh, you know, there still is the the uh, the, the shame of the sin. I mean. So we know we're forgiven that for that sin, but we we're still shameful that of that sin that we have we have been uh, that we have committed. Uh, we're shameful what we did uh, what we did uh, and how that reflected on our relationship or impacted our relationship. Um, <clears throat> but we got to remember that God loves us, and we we're shameful of that event, and and we remember the shame it caused. And we remember the the consequences of that, and that helps us in, in our in our in our active defense, really against uh, further temptation. We we know their shame, they know their consequences, and and the previous two chapters that uh, uh, Marvin and and Will were talking about. One thing that struck me is that that you know with, with that sin, uh, it's like a ripple effect. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's far reaching. We never know how far reaching our sin is. We know that it's a it's a, uh, a violation against uh, God and His laws and other individuals. But that it's like dropping a pebble in a pool, and those circles just continually go out. We never know how far reaching uh, our sin is, and that's and you know. The most important thing is it's a violation uh, of God's commandments and our, our holy heavenly father that we need to remember, which is which is the, the first thing, but also uh, also the individual. But there may be extended family members, you know, children, uh, you know, it, it, uh, relatives of relatives. I mean, it's just it, it's just like a chain, a ripple effect uh, that we that I that that's what came to my mind when we were talking about that. Mm-hmm. But the shame that we feel. Uh, includes uh, uh, he, he says uh, on, on page 476 towards the bottom then this is not a shame that includes a fear of rejection but a shame mingled with the freedom of security a believer experiences because his sins are forgiven um, believers are on a new path the road of holiness leading to eternal life by the free grace of God but still they're ashamed of their past as Murray uh, as John Murray said um, and then uh, we know we've been, uh, there's the deliverance from sin's domain, but a remaining corruption. And, and that kind of goes back, uh, you know, we still have that corruption in us. Um, we have been delivered from the d- dominion of sin, uh, but there are, we st- our bodies are corrupt. We still live in a fallen world. And uh, 
but we're walking in newness of life, but we're still going to be tempted. We're still going to have those time periods where we're challenged, uh, but we're no longer under sin. We're no longer a domain of sin, a domain of dark, darkness under, under the rule of Satan, but we're under, uh, but we're under uh, the, 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 the uh, love of, of, of Christ. Uh, we're under grace. We're under grace. We're no longer slave to sin, but to, 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 to our Lord and uh, Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's uh, under grace and, and our hearts um, experience, uh, as well as the, the shame, our hearts also experience conflict and disappointment uh, uh, with themselves at times. And again, we need to remember we're under grace now. We're no, more, no longer dominated by, by Satan or sin. So Christians live in the painful paradox of salvation begun but not completed. They love God and his righteous law. For he has set them free from the reign of sin, but they still find sin and evil in themselves as they wait for their full redemption and glorification. Indwelling sin would not hurt them so much if they did not truly love God. And that's important. I mean, for, for one that truly loves God, that sin is going to hurt them. I mean, it's mm-hmm. going to make them feel shame. Um, and the, and the more, the more uh, we are refined, the more uh, as God prepares us uh, through the refinement, through the sanctification process, our hate and just uh, for sin should, should grow uh, more and more. Um, okay. And he says, well, this Mike, Mike, would you mind if I just finish that paragraph? Because sure. that, that is such a meaty paragraph. Yeah. He, he says, uh, this can be a comfort to them for the inward battle between holy love and sin evidences a true conversion, yet believers cannot be satisfied until they love the Lord with all their hearts, all their souls, and all their strengths. Boy, what yeah. a I got that paragraph circled and underlined and stuff in the margins. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. is such a needful paragraph there. Yeah, I, I've got pretty much that whole whole paragraph uh, uh, highlighted. Yeah, but thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, uh, I mean, that that's the key thing. I mean, if you're... yeah. Uh, to the love, your love for for the Lord. I mean, that's the center of it. Is the love, you know, we and the the unity and faith, the unity and love, and it, and it's just it's going to hurt you. But you, you know, it's like uh, uh, it's going to be a battle. It's going to be a battle, and I, and to me, that shows the true conversion. I mean, because um, if you if you st- if if you see an individual at sin, and it's it doesn't. Uh, they don't. They don't think about how it, it, it impacts the relationship with a holy, uh, holy God. I mean, uh, you just got to ask yourself the question. You know, you got to go to them and, and help them, pray for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and then it uh, you know it, it talks about, and this is a this uh, next section, assurance of salvation. Uh, I think it'd be a good good section for you know we people. Uh, I, you talk with, they'll talk about, well, I, you know, I, am I sure to my salvation? Well, I mean, he gives uh, three things uh, that he brings up for uh, assurance. He said, true assurance does not make careless, casual questions, but fosters reverence for the Father. And, he, and then he says, uh, assurance, and this is on page 478, assurance and fear appear to be opposite, but Peter gives three reasons why they go together. Assurance brings sobering fear because of the holiness of the Father. And then, so, so true. Um, and then the, uh, the uh, he says, the more we stand assured that, uh, that the Holy uh, God is our father, the more our hearts will fear him like a child, childlike reverence mingled with love for the majesty, his holy majesty. 
And then he says, um, reverence for God engenders in God's children a, a careful guardian against displeasing God by disobedience and the commission of sins and being active to please him in all things. Again, it, it's a it's a it highlights the relationship, but it's a, it's an active relationship uh, of love and uh, and obedience and dependency. The second thing he says, assurance brings grateful fear because the price of our redemption, again, the precious blood of the Christ of the Lamb, without blemish and without spot, we should be in awe over the terrible cost of our salvation. It reminded me, Van, of your 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 um, message. I don't. It was. Uh, was it this past Sunday or two Sundays ago where you said, think about your salvation. But when you think about it, do you think about it in this way? And, and one of them is the mm. terrible cost of our salvation. Mm. And then the third, he said, assurance brings a careful fear because of the condition of our assurance. Um, he goes on to say, uh, we cannot lose our salvation, but we can lose, we can lose our assurance while we are saved only by faith in Christ, we enjoy our assurance of salvation by walking and growing holiness. So as we walk in, in, uh, in holiness with, with the Lord and we're sanctified, that should increase our assurance. Hey, as I'm walking with my father and being molded, being shaped, uh, facing trials and temptations and, 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 and with the help of the Holy Spirit and the Lord's leading, I, I am, I am, I am growing in my assurance. I can, you know, I get through a tough, tough time period in my life or a, or a tough event where, where I was hurt and I come through it and, and I look back on it and, and I look back on it with joy. I mean, um, my, I'm growing in my assurance in my, in my faith and my strength, uh, 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 in my walk. So, I mean, I, I uh, our, our walk, uh, should be increasing our assurance as we walk in life, we experience things. We have other brothers and sisters come around us for prayer and support. And and helping us through this, that, that should increase our assurance uh, of, our, of our our assurance. And uh, that that thought that was a good point. And then um, he ends the section on this chapter by the believers' uh, uh, hope for complete purity from sin. Uh, and he uh, on page four seventy nine, that first paragraph, sin shall not have the last word in the believer's life. God elected His people to be His holy sons and daughters in Christ. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of the Son. God's sovereign purpose of grace cannot fail. His people will be pure. Christ did not come to reduce sin, but to destroy it. So, I mean, it's, um, <clears throat> I mean, that, that we can have hope in that. I mean, that should give us hope. It should give us joy as we, as we, we, we uh, were living and walking in, in, in the fallen world. And he ends, I like the way he ends, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife had made herself ready. And to her was, grant, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Hmm. So I, I, hope, I hope my summary and uh, pointing out things uh, uh, did justice for this chapter. Hmm. I enjoyed reading it and I enjoyed the uh, the the um, the the edification the chapter brought to my understanding a greater understanding of God's word in, in particular in this and the references. Yeah, well, same here. Thank you so much, Mike. Well, Marvin, brother, would would you, would you mind closing this out for our session today? Sure, I can do that. Yeah, glad. Thank to. you.
our Father, how grateful we are that as we have gone through the complexity and depth of sin, of the righteous judgment of God against it, uh, and have seen it not only in the penalty upon ourselves, uh, but also, uh, as um, Edward and Fuller say, uh, the eternal the eternal uh, consequences of our sins, that is, our sins to require an eternal work and an eternal justification. And Christ Jesus has done that. He's provided the only satisfaction that can not only pardon sin now, but can pardon sin for all eternity. And not just ours, but everyone who's gone before us who has placed their faith either in the coming Christ or in the Christ uh, the Christ who walked in Galilee and was um, crucified, buried, resurrected, and descended. Um, Father, and, and particularly in the last chapter, Father, we just pray that as we see the depth and complexity of sin and, and its poisonous uh, uh, roots, uh, Father, let us know that indeed not only did Christ die for the penalty of our sin, uh, but he he died also to break the dominion of sin because uh, death had no claim upon him because he had no sin. Father, as he has given to us eternal life, uh, as as he has drawn us to himself, Lord, let us do so and constantly uh, be thankful in that and also let our love for the divine trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, which manifest and glorify the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, let us use that as uh, the rest of our souls uh, as we lean upon that, as we uh, depend upon that, as we with open hands receive that by faith, uh, but as we walk in this world, Father, and realize that it is, uh, as Van said at the very beginning, it is indeed a long war. Father, bless our our. Our time, Father, for this, uh, uh, for my brothers who have contributed so greatly to this, and we want to give you the glory for it, and ask Father that what we've done might be useful to somebody in Jesus' name.